Hello there and welcome back to another Coffee and Heroes podcast as we go off with our monthly review show. We're going to be looking back at the best titles from February 2023. Titles we enjoyed the most from DC, from Marvel, from indie companies. A little bit of a general catch up and usual pop culture chat with us as well. So your host as always, Alan from Coffee and Heroes in Belfast and joined us ever this evening by Mr. Keith Miller. Good evening sir, this is a an odd Saturday night recording. This does not happen often. No, 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 not indeed. Uh, what were we? We couldn't we couldn't record on Wednesday this week because you were flat out, weren't you, with the this, with the, the order is, and stuff. This is the joys of having a, a child these days. You're now on their timetable. Uh, combination of that, not that Alfie's hard work, but just kids require a lot of attention. But uh, yeah, combination of that and a lot of orders this week and um, Wednesday was a busy day. I was also uh, working five days this week, which I'm I'm just not used to anymore, Keith. I had to work Monday to Friday mm-hmm. this week. Normally, mm-hmm. normally Chris is there Thursday, Friday, but uh, he was over at a at a football game, so. He did the Saturday for me, hence why we're recording on the Saturday, I suppose, instead. But you know. exactly, yeah. Um, I got in to see you on Tuesday. Um, it was nice to get a wee catch up. Uh, it's been a wee while since since uh, since I got in. Uh, I think because of of work, and I had a wee bit of a wee bit of cold, a wee bit of a head cold. Uh, I didn't want to be spreading it around. You can maybe still hear it on me a wee bit. Uh, so I hope that's not too annoying to listen to. Uh, but definitely at the other end. But yeah, got in and picked up two weeks worth of uh, of pull list, which uh, is always a joy to get through. Yeah, so it that's the thing. We we obviously work on sort of culling our pull list from time to time and trying to focus on quality over quantity, so that you can enjoy the reading piles from week to week and uh, make sure that you get through them. And then sometimes when it becomes a case of you've got two weeks worth to pick up, you sort of look at the pile a little bit and think. Oh, let myself slip here. Need to get back on the horse. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely back on the horse uh, this week. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading, got through. Yeah, well, that's that's the important thing. That's it. I mean, it's all about enjoying what you read as well as as much as anything else. And sometimes, yeah, if you let it pile up, it can just be a little bit like, oh my god, I'm like that when I get new omnibuses, and I just think, I'm, when am I going to get a chance to read these? Oh, I've got a I've got a pile of omnibuses building up beside the bed. Uh, I've got a I've got a whole pile to get through, but uh, one of these days, one of these days. Yeah, I mean, I managed to get through Ultimate Spider-Man Volume Two. That's the last one I read, but I've I've one or two lined up. I really want to reread the Grant Morrison Batman stuff again, especially given you know James Gunn has been signposting it as stuff integral to the upcoming DC movie universe and so forth. But uh, yeah, I think I've about seven left from this week, so you never know. I might be able to hit a wee omnibus up on Monday night. We shall we shall you see. Never know. You never know. I yeah. Uh, I'm away for work all next week, so I'm afraid I won't get in again until maybe Saturday to pick up next week's pull list. So I've got plenty of time to get through uh, to get through last week's and this week's. Well, the good news is I'll be back this Saturday, so it's back to normal, so it's all good. But yes. uh, but as I say, given uh, my new life as a father, I have zero time for pop culture, television, any of the above. So uh, I'm just going to listen to you talk for the next 10 minutes about all the stuff you're enjoying, and then yeah, I'll hopefully absolutely. get to yeah. soon. Yeah, whenever you you get around to it, sort of in the next sort of three or four months. Um, so yeah, you haven't watched any of The Last of Us, which was uh, absolutely fantastic, uh, based on the Naughty Dog uh, game of the same name. Uh, brilliantly cast, um, brilliantly shot. Uh, just a really good example of of how to do a really good adaptation on on TV. Um, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it was. It was maybe a slightly different experience uh, for those who have played the game uh, and those who had not. Um, certainly, as, as someone who played and enjoyed the game, 
I was expecting the ending that uh, whenever it came and uh, and uh, thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, that's something you have to look forward to. Uh, you're a big fan of Ted Lasso. That's uh, that's relaunched for what, a third season, is yeah, it? Yeah, third and final season. Uh, hit this Wednesday, so of course we're recording this on Saturday. And I still haven't watched it, but uh, hopefully I'm going to change that tomorrow because it is a it's a very light show. See, this is the thing we've talked before about this that Last of Us when your free time is at such a premium. The last thing you want to do sometimes is watch a really heavy, bleak, dark, all hope is lost show. And uh, I kind of know how the season ends because, let's be honest, you can't not watch anything straight away these days. It's spoiled straight away on Twitter. So the darkness of how season one ends. And I think to myself, do I really want to put myself through that when I've limited free time? So no, I want a happy-go-lucky TV show about an American football coach who comes to England to coach him in the Premier League and hasn't a clue about football. But it is fantastic, Ted Lasso. It's just so much fun. But yeah, it's back for its third and final season. So hopefully get watching that. And next time we're talking, hopefully I'll be up to date on that. We shall see. Perfect. Uh, you're not a Star Trek fan, so you won't have been consuming Picard. No, but uh, our group chat, three. you guys are going properly nuts for it. Oh, it's very, very good. It's the final season uh, of that show also. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, all bets are off, I think. Um, whenever you've got the inclusion of uh, of classic characters from from throughout the uh, the generations um, and, and uh, you've got a final season there, there there's definitely danger there uh, for some uh, for some favorites uh, very very good story uh, really drawn on on uh, on classic Star Trek mythos uh, thoroughly enjoying it thoroughly enjoying it more so than than, than the previous two seasons uh, anyway and uh, Mando uh, has kicked off again um <sighs> I'm enjoying it all right. Uh, you watch season two yet? Or I, you... I'm up to date in Mandalorian, apart from obviously mm-hmm. the new stuff. And I do wonder if it's maybe lost a bit of its freshness. I mean, as any show does. But, you know, I hear adverts on the radio and uh, in the store. And anytime he goes, this is the way. It now just sounds like a catchphrase rather than, you know, a cool line, if that makes sense. It's almost, it's like that Simpsons uh, thing with Bart in the classroom. It's like, he's going to say it, say the line. This is the way, yay! Uh, you know, it's, yeah, so yeah, it's, I am looking forward to it. Though. I loved the first two seasons, so I will get yeah. to it. Yeah, oh, it's good. It's it's definitely uh, it's definitely good. Uh, yeah, enjoy enjoying it. I haven't, I didn't get round today to watching the new episode. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, Picard would be much higher on my list uh, of things that I, that I need to watch. Um, but then I am in a wee bit of a Star Trek kick at the minute as well. So, uh, so there is that. We did have during the week the Oscars. Not something either you or I put. An awful lot of stock in. No, um, not for a long time. Uh, it does sort of give me a list of movies that I, or remind me a list of movies that I want to watch. Um, you know, <laughs> I thought you were going to say it gives me a list of movies that I will actively avoid. No, it just sort of reminds you. You know, I, I do want to see that uh, Brendan Fraser's The Whale and uh, uh, everything all the time, all at once, or whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> it looks like a really interesting flick. Um, it was a big one for for Northern Ireland, actually. Uh, this year uh, with uh, An Irish Goodbye uh, taking the best short film Oscar uh, haven't seen it yet I know they put it up in BBC iPlayer um, I don't uh, tend to watch BBC because I don't have a TV licence uh, to do so um, don't pay the bastards uh, for for, uh, for the for the privilege of watching their propaganda but um but yeah, it was it was a big big one for Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland filmmaking, I guess. A um, couple of the folk in it I know, um, Michelle Fairley uh, of Game of Thrones fame was in there. 
uh, as uh, as was Seamus O'Hara, who is a gentleman uh, who I met at the same time as I met my lovely fiance. Uh, he was working on a play uh, in the uh, in the arts centre that I used to manage up in Port Stewart. Uh, play was called The Fairy Thorn, and a uh, very very nice guy and uh, and a very deserved deserved winner. It's great to see nice things happening for nice people. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, anything that gives a, you know, a boost to the local film economy and obviously much more exposure and stuff like that is, is always to be welcomed. I mean, again, I, A, I can't comment on it because I haven't seen it or have that one degree of separation that you have to an Oscar winner. Uh, and also, I, um, I just, I don't put stock in the Oscars anymore. Like when I was younger, I used to make, I would probably say up until my mid-twenties, I used to sit up and watch the Oscars live every year. I'd make a big deal of it. I'd have a couple of drinks, usually have friends around, you know, have like a little pool going, who's going to win, etc. But it just got to the point where just, for me anyway, based on my personal movie taste, uh, deserving winner, deserving titles got no recognition and political gain, you know, nonsense did. And I just, yeah, I just sort of fell in love with the Oscars a little bit. So Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, these things... You know, best best of lists. I mean, although we do best of lists every every time we record, you know, but really we're just trying to inform. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but I don't know. They just don't. They don't don't do a lot for me anymore. You know, you like what you like. I think. Um, I think, I think it is. Still I think it best is. of lists. I think it's that's our favorite titles. Whereas when yeah. something wins an Oscar, people think that the general consensus is that everyone thinks. This is the better, you know. What I, I mean? see, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, but the, like nice, nice local success, regardless. That said, uh, there was a movie that you got out to see. You got a, you and Vicky both got away for a, for a chance to see it. We did, yeah. We, uh, I mean, it's it's no secret that I'm a big fan of the Ant Man movies in the MCU. I think that they're very underrated gems. I think that you know they're full of charm. They're full of inventiveness. Uh, great visuals, good chemistry between characters, some brilliant actors as well. I mean, I mean, Marvel have always done this well ever since they kicked off the MCU. It was always get like a maverick actor as your lead, get an old hand as either a mentor or a villain. You know, with Iron Man, it was Jeff Bridges. With Captain America, it was Tommy Lee Jones. So with Ant Man, it was Michael Douglas. And then by the second one, you had Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, so, but yeah, the third one came out Ant Man Quantum Mania. Uh, Vicky and I managed to get to the cinema to see that. I really enjoyed it. I I think it it maybe lost a little bit of what an Ant Man movie is to me, in that for a start there was no Luis. Where was Luis? That that's what I uh, wanted. Yeah, actually, I never I never thought about it, but uh, that's a really good point. But yeah, I mean, it was just like the scenes at the very start and the scenes at the very end of Scott walking through San Francisco and you know enjoying the fact that he saved the world and all that kind of stuff. I really like that stuff because I. The Ant-Man movies are different in a way because they they have that San Francisco setting and they seldom deal with end-of-the-world stuff, you know, and this one was not just end-of-the-world but end-of-the-multiverse stuff. So there was a part of me thinks they did lose a little bit of the charm, but that being said, it was still a tremendously fun movie, you know, good action and a good character dynamics, um, ton of inventiveness. But there were times I was watching I thought, this reminds me more of a Star Wars movie than a Marvel movie. Um, just all the different creatures, um, you know, the the oppressed um, society being ruled over by um, an evil empire and bad guy, uh, resistance that they need to be a part of. They're, they're, like, don't get me wrong, those are all well-established tropes, but yeah, they, they just it reminded me of a Star Wars movie in places. But uh, no, uh, no complaints, really enjoyed it. Um, and I thought that uh, 
Kang was fantastic. Jonathan Majors was one of the best things in it, which you know gets me reinterested in the the MCU moving forward. What about yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same as that. Same as that. I thought it was a a psychedelic green screen extravaganza, uh, just by virtue of uh, most of it taking place in the in the microverse. Um, it was cool to see the Micronauts uh, introduced, uh, like a, a seventies Marvel um concept uh those you know all the, all the heroes of the microverse um yeah really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed that uh modok provided a little bit of comic relief <laughs> and his origin of the mcu is quite quite hilarious <laughs> um, so there was there was that if i mean that, that was the only part that i felt like the the special effects were a wee bit meh you know um they really you know really after after avatar the way of water they really have to up their game like with, with regard to visual effects and and green screen work and all that sort of stuff for sure uh jonathan majors was standout really excited about uh especially some of the, the post credit scenes as well uh you know the council of kangs and and all of that sort of stuff um i did think there was a you know there was a danger that uh michael douglas might not make it out the other end of this particular movie and i thought there was a there was a wasted opportunity <laughs> you know whenever he sort of saved the day <laughs> You know, he should have kind of gone, who's Ant-Man? <laughs> it, would have been, it would have been something, uh, you know, based on the, the way in which he saved the day. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, just uh, good fun. I suppose one of the reasons as well, I think it moved a wee bit away from what an Ant-Man movie was, was that Ant-Man movies have always been populated by loads of just normal everyday characters, normal everyday personas. In this movie, it felt like everybody was either a superhero or you know, they they had something to bring to the game, so to speak. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there was, was no just was... Um, normal per- normal people in it, which I thought was a bit of a a change in direction as well. Um, even his daughter was essentially you know a well trained superhero and and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, stature. So, yeah, it was nice. It was nice to see her develop though. Uh, she was really develop, good character. The the other thing I would say is as well, I didn't like the actress as much as I liked the actress from the first two movies. Now, part uh-huh. of that is because they moved forward five years in time and maybe they wanted a bit more star power with recasting and stuff, but I always loved the bond between Ant-Man mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. his daughter in the first two movies. I thought it was really, really well handled and she was like quite a kick-ass wee character. But in this, you know, it, it was, it's just that recasting sometimes, you know what I mean? It's it's It can be jarring, yeah, it can yeah, be jarring. But, but I understand why. I understand why. If not, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And speaking of which, we uh, we both got out last night for a wee bit of a treat. Yeah, this is true. Um, I mean, a uh, longtime friend and regular of the store, Roddy McCants, uh, you know, a very talented writer in his own right. He's obviously released comics and so forth. We you know carry them in the store. He was making his debut last night as a playwright uh, in the Lyric Theatre with uh, a showcase for new playwrights, and it was a first reading of a script that he had written, and. Uh, thoroughly enjoyable yeah the visitor it was called um and uh fingers crossed that it, 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 uh, it goes a wee bit further and that uh and that it's just the first step uh of uh of roddy into into, into that medium because uh, it really was it was a and and, and standard mccann's fashion it was a it was a chiller it was a horror mm-hmm. um set in in late 70s belfast during the height of the troubles uh, it was set in the royal victoria hospital it was very very creepy. In fact, going home in the train last night, Bruno and I were talking more about it. And the more we talked about it, the creepier it got. <laughs> uh, as we, you know, as we talked our way through it, it was it was a reading, a read through rather than rather than a complete play. Yeah. But but I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it fully cast. Um, 
uh, definitely. And, uh, and Bruno obviously works in theatre, so has a wee bit more of an eye for these things uh, and really enjoyed it. So, yeah, well done. Well done, Roddy. It was good to get out with him afterwards. And uh, and he actually asked the question, when am I back on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Those so, dulcet tones are welcome back anytime. He knows that. Exactly, exactly. So uh, so maybe get him back for a, for a book club or, or something. I think that uh, could be a plan. Lines. I think that could be a plan. Hundred yeah, percent. We just need to. We just need to get on a book club. Uh, we just need to get the time to to prep and uh, and get it done. Um, yeah. I mean, other than that, uh, other than that, uh, I've uh, I've managed to spend the past few weekends with another couple of regulars in the store. Uh, Stuart and uh, and Martin were were friends of old uh, from from back up the north coast. And uh, we started a semi-regular uh, board game afternoon on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, around, uh, I just got a just got a new a new to me kitchen table, but it's 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 big. Uh, and the reason it's big is because you can play big games. You on mean a big table. you mean you have a gaming table in your kitchen? Yeah, buddy. Um, <laughs> so so uh, so yeah, we were, the last few few weeks we've been playing uh, we played uh, uh, a game called The Quiet Year, a narrative game that we really enjoyed. Very, very different from anything we've ever played. Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite a role-playing game, not quite a board game. Uh, something very much in between. Uh, we played uh, Highlander, the board game, which I've been looking to play for a while, which we enjoyed. Uh, there can be only one. And uh, and we have been playing a Firefly board game, uh, which is, is just a fantastic use of a of a license to create a to create a game. It just it works so well. Um as a board game um, and there's a couple of expansions for it so it takes up the whole table uh, but uh, we thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed that so I mean I did make a resolution at the beginning of the year that I was going to play more board games with my friends so uh, so that's definitely it's definitely working well this way um, so yeah I have to get you have to get you around for a little bit of board gaming someday yeah, I mean the, my, my favorite part of the story of you board gaming again is when obviously you have to dismantle said game because you know you don't you know some some games can go for two hours some games can go for days you know and obviously you can't just leave the table on uh, the, the game set up in your kitchen table so every angle is covered multiple photos taken cross-examined and making sure nobody cheats before the next uh well the next that's, stage that's, of the that's game it, commences. Yeah. that's funny because you you know the the story card that you you know you pick different uh, the way the game works, there are different story cards, different scenarios mm-hmm. uh, to play through with different goals. And you sort of pick one and it gives you a rough timing, you know, two to three hours. However, we we added the two expansions and a whole lot of different rule sets to the game. So we forgot that that would probably double or triple the time uh, of play. But yeah, thoroughly enjoyable. And as as uh, as Martin said, we saved the game state, uh, you know, for the next time we get a chance, maybe next weekend or the weekend after. Um, so yeah, pretty uh, pretty cool. Nice way to spend a day. Yeah, no, yeah. definitely, definitely, and then just some sort of sad news to finish off on, uh, with uh, the the news coming out pretty much this morning that uh, Lance Riddick had passed away. Um, the name will be familiar to fans of many different genres. I mean, obviously he's in the Wire as a big one. I know for yourself. Oh, huge, you know. huge! Yeah, played, played. Uh, um, the Lieutenant, Lieutenant Daniel Cedric Daniels. In the wire, uh, he was in every, every all sixty episodes, and he just uh, just a phenomenal actor, built like a brick shit house as well. <laughs> Absolutely huge guy, but uh, such an actor. Um, and uh, and uh, he, he was sixty years old, uh, died quite quite suddenly, and uh, a lot of different actors from the wire have been uh, passing on their regards. But uh, as you say, he was cross medium, and he also uh, he loaned his image and his voice to. The character of Silence in the Horizon Zero Dawn and Horizon Forbidden West games, 
uh, the, the latter of which I'm playing through. And I think some of the guys were saying a game I've never played, but uh, Destiny. Yeah, Destiny 2, I think he mm. uh, voiced characters in. You know, he was in stuff like Lost, things like Oz, Fringe, well known for uh, John Wick um, as well. Of course, John Wick. John Wick. And actually, he wasn't Lost, was he? Yeah. He yeah. was. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, of course. Of course, the first place I'd have seen him. Yeah. One of my personal favorite TV shows of all time. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, from what we understand, it was of natural causes. There's no suspicions around anything like that. I think it was just very, very sudden. Caught a lot of people off guard. But he's obviously been someone in the industry who people thought, A, very highly of for his talent, but also just him in general, because there has been a, a large outpouring of grief and, you know, testimonials towards him and, and things like that. So... Um, you know, rest in peace, certainly there. We will see him in the upcoming John Wick 4. He had already filmed scenes for that. And I think it also filmed scenes for the spin-off for John Wick 4. Uh, John Wick was called Ballerina uh, right. as well. So um, there, there, we'll still see some more of his work, such as the way the, the film industry works. But uh, no, very much, you know, rest in peace. So, mm-hmm. but uh, Absolutely. Um, what, about, uh, what about things in the store over the last month or so? Anything exciting? Yeah, I mean, you know me, just keep on trucking along, keep on adding more I can add, keep on topping up those graphic novels, um, change a few wee bits and pieces here and there. We've started displaying figures and models and so forth. Um, I've wrestled with this for years, nearly since I opened, of, you know, do you take things <laughs> yeah. out of the box? Because they're no longer new, but they are still new because they haven't left the shop. Um, but it's certainly working because we've sold more statues in the last two weeks than we've sold in probably the last two or three years. Mm. So uh, I think people being able to see these high-value items and highly detailed items I think definitely helps. Uh, I've reorganized the graphic novels, so DC and Marvel are their own separate sections now uh, because my stock levels are high enough that I can give them their own sections. I was always worried I would come across... I know the joke is I'm Mr. DC, but (laughs) probably for the first four or six years of the business. So we'll be six years this June, probably the first four. DC DC graphic novels probably outweighed Marvel two to one, but I've managed to... You know, re- address that balance perfectly yes, balanced yes. as all things should be. Yes, as, as we well know. So, uh, yeah, re- bit of reorganizing, rebagging, retaping, bit of everything really there. Um, Good. So, yeah, always, Good work. always changing things. What can I say? Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, and with regard to obviously we're reviewing we're reviewing comics for for February. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have you felt February has been in the world of comics overall? There's a lot of quality throughout the month. I mean. Again, being a DC fan, for me, I thought DC was the standout publisher this month. Um, A lot of really good titles, both brand new stuff through their Dawn of DC line, but Mm -hmm. also some of their one-shots, some titles that are almost coming to an end, we'll we'll certainly be talking about as well. Um, Marvel released tons of titles. Uh, I had a healthy amount of Marvel. I mean, a quarter of my pull list the whole month was Marvel, Um, Mm -hmm. so I have more than healthy there, but Marvel definitely released more titles than DC. Uh, when it comes to like new stuff going on the racks and so forth, um, and then indie wise, yeah, I mean it was strong for indie as always. You know, lots of good stuff from Image and Boom and um, a couple of other smaller publishers as well, bringing stuff out. You know, store was nice and busy, tons of good stuff, a lot of nice deluxe graphic novels coming out as well in uh, in the month of or towards the end of February. Things like you know, Many Deaths of Lila Star was getting a nice hardcover. Um, Snow Angels from Jock and Jeff Lamar was getting a nice hardcover. Some really cool omnibuses coming out during that time as well. 
So, uh, yeah, all in all, from a store perspective, tons of quality came out in February um, and pretty much something for everyone, you know. So uh, what about yourself? What was your overriding thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I thought there were some really stellar books this month. Um, quite a few series coming to a conclusion. Um, yeah, definitely felt uh, that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it would have been quite easy to repeat sort of picks from the last month or two because those books remain strong. But I think this month I wanted to try and avoid uh, that in order to highlight a few fresh ones. I mean, Rodney Burns' Philadelphia spin-off series, uh, the nightmare blog of Nita Hayes came to a, a spectacular sort of second arc conclusion, sort of packs a major surprise that that I think is going to have big implications beyond Nita's story and into Philadelphia. And uh, does so while seeding some well-crafted questions about life and the human condition and... I mean, we had Cantwell and uh, Pascal Ferry's Namor Conquered Shore. Uh, that was one of these that, you know, I picked the, I picked the, the penultimate issue four of that series. Fantastic series last month. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the conclusion of that issue five was only an improvement. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a great post-apocalyptic, almost an Invaders series uh, that I think is going to make a brilliant read and collected edition. And, you know, if you read... Uh, if you read Chip Zdarsky's Always an Invader, uh, this is a great sort of nearly follow up to it. It's set, you know, in a future Earth that is sort of destroyed and the Atlanteans are ascendant and Namor finds himself almost a protector of the humans rather than the Atlanteans. You know, it's a really, really great and a really great looking story. So if you get a chance to pick up that that five issues in collected edition, I would highly recommend it, uh, especially because I know you enjoyed the, uh, you know, the Invader stuff whenever Chip was doing it. So uh, well worth a look. And I mean, we've highlighted 8 Billion Genies recently over the past few weeks and months. The penultimate issue of that was this month. Uh, it was phenomenal. It remains brilliantly bright and imaginative. But for fear of repeating ourselves, I'm going to hold off the next month, anticipating what's going to be a brilliant conclusion. Um, Jason Aaron's Once Upon a Time at the End of the World, number four, was also brilliant. I've explored uh, Mezzi's background in the, in, the, in the Scouts and the Rangers. Um so uh, all, again, worth chatting about. We have the usual great quality from McKay and Moon Knight and Taylor and Nightwing, but uh, I'm sure it won't be long before we talk about those again. But not me, not this month. Um, Sins of Sinister series kicked off really strongly with Al Ewing, Storm and the Brotherhood, number one. Those are the, you know, the three the three titles that are three issues each, you know, one year after Sinister, two, 10 years, and then 100 years. So I think, or is it 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? I can't remember. But uh, yeah, all really good. But yeah, start strong month sort of across the board. Uh, but yeah, trying to trying to trying to keep things fresh this month with my picks a little bit. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we as you say, we highlight the same things a lot of the time, primarily because of their quality and they are the things we're enjoying most. But I think given the sheer range and diversity of titles that we go through, it is only fair to take a month or two off from some titles. Don't worry, dear listener. I'm sure Nightwing will be back next month. <laughs> I can assure you. Not only that, but there was a really cool announcement there a day or so ago that Tom Taylor put up. They were dropping their idea for a future issue of Nightwing. It's it's a couple issues down the line, but it's going to be a 30-pager point-of-view issue where you basically see the entire world through Dick Grayson's eyes uh, in a sort of first-person point-of-view shot. So, And they, they, yeah. they put that up on Twitter with like this photo of them sitting in a bar in Madrid at 1 o'clock in the morning drinking whiskey, and they were like, this is where that idea took genesis. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I think that's issue 105, is it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just yeah. a couple away, I think. But I think it's going to be in the solicits for uh, the March book for May releases. Sorry, no, the April book for June releases. 
So yeah. uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about that certainly on a future pod as well. But uh, but yeah, no, we we've talked about it before. We're trying to you know emphasize put emphasis on quality over quantity for ourselves as well, and you know trying to trim the pull list here and there every so often. So with that in mind, you know the totals this month. Now, fair enough, it was only a four week release month, so maybe that's why the titles are down a little bit as well. But we had a, a dead heat this month. We did eighty two apiece. Uh huh. Now the spread is very different. But uh, yeah, 82 titles total for this month for us both. But for me, that equated to 27 DC and 22 Marvel. So pretty neck and neck, just a couple of titles difference there. <clears throat> and then Indie was my biggest with 33 Indie titles. And how was your spread? My spread was a little more uh, Marvel-sided. Um, I have 16 DC, uh, 40 Marvel, and uh, 26 Indie. So about, about half of my pulls were, were Marvel pulls. Uh, followed up by ND and then DC. Yeah, and that, that that is really interesting to me because once we get into the uh, the choices, there's such a lack of Marvel for whatever reason. But again, it's just, you know, as Keith says, I mean, sometimes you just want to showcase different titles. It might be the other way around next month or might be next to no DC, mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. But, but yeah, we, we went down our picks and normally we pick five different ones each, but sometimes a book will just get through the cracks that we both enjoyed so, so much that we both have to highlight it and both have it as a pick from that month. And I think that very much happened this month. And, mm-hmm. you know, with in a way, we're mentioning this title again, I suppose, because it's under a banner. But obviously, each title is a different creative team. It focuses on a different character. So we're talking about the Batman One Bad Day series now. <clears throat> Keith, of course, already highlighted Riddler is his favorite one-shot issue of last year. You know, I had Mr. Freeze as one of my picks of the month. I think I had Bane as one of my picks of the month. And uh, we landed this time on Clayface. Now, we knew this was going to be good before we even tucked in because of the creative team involved. So, you know, what's interesting about One Bad Day as well is there's a, a couple of guys who have been working on it who, for me, are more Marvel-orientated or more Marvel stalwarts at the moment. So Jerry Duggan is an example. Was over as pretty much the head of X uh, over uh-huh. at Marvel, but he did the Mister Freeze one bad day. In this case, with Clayface, it's the team of Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, who of course are sort of cutting their own little corner of the Marvel universe uh, through the Captain America books specifically. Uh, but they've also got some other stuff coming. I think it's Guardians of the Galaxy they're taking over as well. Guardians of the Galaxy. They did uh, Batman New Year, Batman Beyond New Year at uh, at DC um as well but the, and 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 obviously they're they're on the star trek stuff for idw which is which is absolutely phenomenal so um yeah i mean they're two they're 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 two writers a, you know a hive mind of writers a pair um that are really really are a rising star team i think um you know they're really they're really doing some fantastic stuff no, big time. And and as I say, they are the writers on this title. And the artist is Zermanico, who I know uh, best from doing uh, Deceased Unkillables and also doing uh, Green Lantern Black Stars. It was the three-issue miniseries in between the two volumes of Grant Morrison and Liam Sharp's Green Lantern. And it's an artist I'm a big fan of. And I think they're going to be in some big books coming soon. I think it's a... Oh, what is it they're, they're coming on to? It might be Green Lantern. Uh, I'll need to double could be, check. Could be that. I know they did uh, Flashpoint Beyond as well, and I mean, I think more DC certainly than than, than Marvel. Um, I first noticed them on um, Justice League. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did they did a couple of uh, they did a couple of fill in issues or or a run of issues uh, for Justice League a few 
uh, a few years back and uh, it really was was notable art um so yeah great to be great to see this this team of Lansing Kelly and Germanico I would love to see in a number of different books um really it really is a as a as a great team and then it was uh, Romulo Friado on um on colors yeah so the cracking creative team all around and you knew going into this book it was going to be good. Now obviously Clayface you know, is a character called Basil Carlo who wanted to be an actor. Uh, always had this ambition to be like the greatest actor of all time but his life went off course when he became the shape-shifting monster known as Clayface. But where this, um, the, the setup for this one is that he has actually left Gotham City and he's moved to Los Angeles. Now obviously he can manipulate his body to look like absolutely anybody so he can infiltrate the best parties in Hollywood he can even take over certain actors if he wants, obviously disposing of them in grisly ways beforehand. But what was really cool about the book was it was it was sort of him going through Hollywood and trying to fit in and trying to um, advance himself as an actor. But I think what he finds very quickly is that Los Angeles and Hollywood is just every bit as dirty and hard to navigate and full of shallow people and... You know, it's no better than Gotham, basically, just in a, in a bit of a different way, you know. Um, so it, he goes through the book, um, you know, it, as I say, attending parties, taking over from friends who maybe audition slightly better than him, even though in his mind he's always the better actor. But uh, what's cool as well is I really like that the, the One Bad Day stuff has always been um, born out of... Um, the killing joke, you know, uh, with, you know, Joker always saying, like, all it takes is one bad day to turn any man insane. But what's cool about in this is that the movie he is auditioning for is an adaptation of The Killing Joke, <laughs> which I'm sure Alan Moore must absolutely love that idea, to say yeah, the least. The, the character that, that he was auditioning for was was the Red Hood, the original Red Hood, wasn't it? Yeah. The, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, uh, m- much like sort of the previous installments of of One Bad Day, I mean the story is very dark and very stressful, and uh, you know Basil is living in this state of uh, creative frustration and creative sor- sorrow. And is it interesting that you know he starts the story as as a, a, a his role as as that of a like a someone working in a kitchen in a restaurant like like stereotypical yeah. act, actor coming to LA stuff you know whereas he could have he could have imitated anyone from the start you know and 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 you know gone in at a different level but he decided to start at the start so he's he's living in this state of creative frustration and sorrow and you know obviously throughout the story as he, as you say he he takes out people who are standing in his way of making real art um and it was real. It was really satirical and really morbid, and it, I loved how it riffed on that whole idea of Hollywood and the fakeness of it, you know, and the you know the dog eat dog world of it. You know that I, I thought that was class. But also, it's it's desire to take like sick and twisted characters and try and lighten them up. I mean, they they try to make the Joker a comedian in this, like a funny character and really light and fluffy, and obviously Basil likes to think that he has a little bit more of an insight into how the Joker really is and. <laughs> You know, it's trying to give the character more depth and more darkness and more twisted nature. And they're just like, no, 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 just just play it this way. We we don't need your actor's input notes and, you know, stuff like that. But but yeah, so he loses out that role to a friend. Um, so he decides to murder that friend and take his identity and then thinks, I'll, I'll change their mind from the inside. Because basically the guy who got the role 
played at that light and flippant way and they love that you know um but then when he comes in the director's sort of like what happened to you you, you weren't the same guy that auditioned for us but uh he's, he's, he, he couldn't he can't let it go he can't uh, no. he can't let go his vision of the character despite the fact he's coming at it from the the point of view of this well you say friend but i think that was a really good a really good way that they you know these guys were working alongside each other and you know, as soon as there was a role involved, <laughs> Boris was willing to kill this dude just to take, you know, it's that backstabbing sort of yeah. Hollywood it's take, thing. Taken to know? the next extreme, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really class to read because the thing is, he's trying to make this new life for himself. He's trying to get away from Gotham. He thinks he deserves this shot at Hollywood, but he still can't control that urge to kill people or mm-hmm. to commit crimes or, you know, all sorts. So it's... Uh, I just thought it was an absolutely brilliant book. I mean, Kelly and Lansing have talked at length since about how so much of the book is informed by their own experiences and frustrations, trying to break into Hollywood as writers and, you know, fake promise or sorry, broken promises and fake smiles and buzzwords yeah, and all this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And they've channeled it all into this one book. And it just reads magnificently. I mean, the the art perfectly complements it as well. I mean, you've got everything from sort of nine panel structures of like the original Watchmen to big splash pages to mm-hmm. horror to comedy elements. Um, great expressions the whole way through. It's got your, you know, favorite thing when it comes to art, which is nice clean lines. Yeah, I think, the way yeah. Through. I mean, Zermatico nailed it there. He, he nailed it in that, you know, the, the, whole, the whole story is narrated from, from Carlo's point of view. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, that's maybe the most haunting part of the story. And I mean, if you're, if you're looking for a good, a good murder story, then this is it for you, you know, but it's the way his, his mental state is, is, is expressed throughout the story. And, you know, Zermanico, you know, uses, you know, pieces of the, the script that, that Carlo's reading and, and his, his various afflictions as Clayface to, to show how he's absolutely fallen apart his personality has fallen apart as much as his body is, is malleable, you know? Um, and it, it just, it just, it's, it's absolutely, the art is beautiful. And you can see how fake, how fake Basil is, you know what I mean? Basil's just a construct as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's an actor who in some ways you could say is a liar by a liar by profession, you know, who can change his physical state as well as his, his personality so it's mm-hmm. it's it's it just as really is really brilliant it's, i mean the creative the creative violence and the psychological horror are hanging out of it yeah and then of course it switches gears towards the end with you know batman catching up with them and you know getting to confront the fact that he's killed nine people in this pursuit of you know trying to move up this cutthroat industry and be someone that people respect and you know, in a way, he's lost sight of his goals, you know, and, you know, mm. uh, well, certainly how to achieve them anyway. But uh, no, the art really, you know, jumps into more traditional superhero mode towards the end. As I say, nice big splash pages, a great fight in the rain between uh, Clayface and Batman as well. Um, and then, of course, it ends in a nice wee dark ending as well with uh, mm-hmm. the sort of remnants of Clayface in this room talking about being open to feedback and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that, that psychological side of it was was great. And I think, I think as I said, the, the art and the writing go together in a very, in a very real sort of synergistic way. I, I would love to see Lansing and Kelly and Zermanigo work together again on something a wee bit maybe longer term. Um, 
I mean, there's there's a real there's a real passion for the for the subjects, and uh, I mean, I the the Riddler stuff was the Riddler stuff was was brilliant, but this is a this is definitely a close second and the one bad day stuff for me. Yeah, I definitely put it up there as well. I mean, for me, I I you know just I think Freeze would be the best out of them all, mm-hmm. um, but I definitely would think top three is Freeze, Riddler, and this. Uh, mm-hmm. Although that could change next week because next week sees the arrival of Batman one bad day, Raz Al Ghul. Raz Al Ghul, yeah. From, uh, <laughs> from uh... the team of Tom Taylor and Ivan Rice. So that could jump the charts. But no, not to take anything away from this whatsoever. This was yeah. a fantastic read. And, and it actually read like a nice break from traditional DC fare for sort of three quarters yeah. of it. It was There was something there was something weirdly uh, endearing about it. And uh, and there was, there was something, I think the colours, the were sort of unsettling on you know in the same way as the freeze colors were all very cold this was quite warm you know it was quite um there was something quite endearing about it in a twisted way yeah but i mean the story was about um how you know the length someone will go to to achieve their dream i guess even if that means you know killing nine people in the process yeah no, well, that's it. I mean, you can see it's a downward spiral at the start. You you almost find yourself rooting for him, but the the more it goes down, you know, you don't want to be complicit in sort of the methods required to reach that point, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it it almost read like an indie horror book. I think for maybe the first fifty pages. I mean, you if if they didn't use the names Basil Carlo and Clayface, uh, you could almost just you could almost change this to like a shapeshifter, make it a horror book, and yeah. you know. It would work just as well, <clears throat> but yeah, definitely up there with the the best titles released in February. I would say uh, that, but that is Batman One Bad Day, Clayface, and again, that is one that we've both picked out because yeah, pretty much ten out of ten for that. So keeping on the uh, Batman trajectory, but the complete opposite in terms of tone uh, I would say was another one of my picks which is Batman Superman World's Finest number 12 now World's Finest for me has just been a delight from start to finish um, or well, from start to this point anyway Mark Wade back <laughs> in the DC universe which is is awesome you know he was one of my favourite writers working through Marvel you know I've talked a great length about you know his Daredevil run and, and different things but having him in Batman Superman is, is wonderful because he just gets these characters he, he knows the history of DC he knows his Silver Age stuff. He knows his Golden Age stuff, and uh, for the he's had Dan Moore along with him as artist for the ride the whole way to this point. But issue twelve changes gears slightly. You know, there's been an ongoing narrative throughout the books. You know, four or five issue story arcs, that kind of thing. Some of it led into uh, Batman versus Robin and Lazarus Planet and big picture stuff, but. World's Finest number 12 is essentially a one-shot. Now, it does have a gorgeous Dan Mora cover, but he is not the artist for the main book. That actually falls to Emanuela Lupicino, uh, which I'll get to in a moment. But yeah, the cover basically depicts Supergirl and Robin, who is Dick Grayson, uh, uh, in a restaurant on a date, and Batman and Superman sort of watching in the background. Uh, but they're saying, check please, so you know this date is not going to go well. So basically the entire book is just a a cross-examination of why these two characters in no way, shape or form would belong together. You know, the the, the book kicks off with them sort of meeting while, um, you know, stopping crime and stuff like that. Supergirl has a crush. Of course, Dick's going to say yes to uh, meeting up and going out on a date, that kind of thing. But. I mean, there's (laughs) there's a great line at the start. I mean, you must have loved this as a Nightwing fan, but uh, Batman comes back to the Batcave and Robin's sitting there looking really, you know, grisly and depressed. And Batman's like, how'd your big date go? 
He's like, oh, don't ask, blah, blah, blah. And he walks over and he sees uh, Dick designing a new costume, which mm-hmm. is the original sort of Disco Wings Nightwing. Uh-huh. And uh, he says, I'm thinking if I could call myself Dark Eagle or something. And Batman <laughs> says, not letting you change your identity over one bad date. But the, the structure of the book is split between three things. So it's split between Robin telling Batman how it went, uh, Kara telling Clark or Superman how the date went. So they're two different points of view. But then also showing the date itself in a restaurant. And the book itself is just tremendous fun. As I said, it's a complete one shot. They get their lines crossed a lot. I mean, <laughs> Dick Grayson shows up to the restaurant dressed as Robin. In his costume. Because <laughs> he's just sort of like, oh, everyone will get a kick out of this. Whereas, you know, Kara got actually dressed into normal civilian clothes outside. Thank you. And uh, yeah. But then because of her x-ray vision, she can see that he's sitting there in his Robin costume. So she gets back into Supergirl. So it... It does portray Dick as a little bit of a self-assured. I mean, it's just because he's nervous; he doesn't know how to act around. A yeah, super and he's person. a performer at heart. Like, I mean, you know, he's a he's an acrobat, he's a performer. You know, so that's you know, that's definitely that's well, definitely where I felt that was that was going there. Definitely awkward, you know, but. Well, I think part I mean, of it as well is just he realizes he's sitting across from a super part person, so he wants to impress her no matter what. So he yeah. talks a lot about his accomplishments or how he stopped this crime or, you know, that kind of thing. He overdoesn't. it. He overdoes it. Oh, he, he completely does, but it, he, he overdoes it in a really charming way. Like, you know, it's, it's funny they're sitting in the restaurant and he opens the menu and he's like, huh fancier than i expected <laughs> supergirl's like oh i can split the check he's like oh no no don't i'll pay you know who i am money's not really a pro shit you know it's, it's sort of like it sounds like he's just bragging over it uh-huh. but you know you've got the stress of the waiting staff and the the, the chefs you know being at odds about you know the food they're going to serve to these people because they can't you know disappoint them or serve them bad stuff um it's just a tremendously, tremendously charming one-shot issue, and it's and it's a bit of a throwback issue for me, which World's Finest has mostly been. It's a throwback to maybe a simpler comics time, I think. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it even gets down to the fact that, like, the, the food comes out and it's freezing, and Dick holds up and he's like, it's cold, maybe some heat vision. She's like, you do not want me using the heat vision right now. <laughs> Pay the bill so we can get out. But, of course, Dick, because he only wears shorts... Doesn't have his wallet with him, and, you know. There's, there's just all these things, you know. And um, as I say, I I just absolutely love this issue, and it was just a nice break from, you know. Obviously, one bad day, Clayface is fantastic, but it's a very dark story. You know, it was just nice to read something nice and light and fun, and you know, sort of a reminder why you love these characters. But but also, it, it shows the reason why. Like sometimes you look at superheroes and think like those two characters would go well together and this shows why that is not always the case to say the least <laughs> yeah i mean and i mean obviously this has been alluded to throughout the series you know they've they've had an odd relationship yeah very so distant this, yeah so this is a flashback as to why that is the case so it was great to to finally learn what happened between robin and and supergirl yeah nice um, setup and payoff with it definitely yeah 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 for um, sure i mean it was it was hard not to miss dan mora uh you know but uh but lupacino definitely uh definitely brought brought a lot with her uh, for sure you know i think so but uh yeah it's just a wee one shot issue as i say and we'll we'll be going back to normal but uh i do like that (laughs) you know at the end you know batman and robin are coming out of the back cave and uh he, you know, Dick is feeling really low about it and he's saying you know Dick just take the loss and move on you know and he's like look easy for you to say Batman, you are pretty flamboyant. <laughs> Robin, you dress me in red and yellow. Does romance ever work out for guys like us? So we, you know, Hawkman's married, 
yeah, he had to die and be reincarnated. Uh, okay, elongated man. We're nothing like Ralph, didn't he? You're right. <laughs> Here's what I do know. You can't force chemistry. Some pairs click, some don't. Take lots and move on. And then the last line is Robin's asking Batman, does Tally have a sister? <laughs> it was so, very it was very cool yeah just very um, very charming and as i say just a lot of fun and yeah it's, it, you do miss dan Mora to a degree but i do think the art bat manuel lupacino suited the story you know it was very yeah a hundred percent i mean characters were really expressive and it was very unique looking and the the action was 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 on point um and you know you needed that because you could you know she really showed robin's awkwardness and you know through through just beautifully beautifully put together facial expressions yeah um definitely definitely a game stuff i mean this this issue is absolutely gorgeous but it also had a had a kind of a wacky silver age feel to it didn't it oh no definitely no definitely and i think that's clearly mark wade's favorite era of batman even yeah. even down yeah. to the costume design that he's no doubt worked on with dan moore and stuff like that it it has that silver age feel to it i think mm-hmm. so uh yeah i mean yeah. it's it's a great book. Uh, I think it's one of one of DC's best superhero books, um, and that's no surprise given given the creative team that are that are on it. I wasn't a massive massive fan of the Boy Thunder story arc. Uh, it didn't do an awful lot for me. It was entertaining, but it, it wasn't right up there. Mm-hmm. And I think this is this is maybe a wee bit of a, a palate cleanser, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next in the yeah. book. I mean, this is the thing. I'll be curious to see how long this book goes on because. Wade and Mora are working together on a new Shazam book coming out. Mm-hmm. Now, there hasn't been any indication that World's Finest is coming to an end, but I do wonder if they could bang out two books a month. Mm. Writer, yes. Artist, maybe no. Mm. Fair. So, Fair. Yeah. yeah. So that is my second pick, which is Batman Superman World's Finest at number 12. Now, you said you wanted to pick different things this month, Keith. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. I know what I know, is this sorry. next pick about then? Yes, yes. Uh, I just couldn't. I couldn't help myself. Um, Star Trek. Four, uh, and yes, despite everything I said uh, at the beginning there, I couldn't help myself. Star Trek, yeah, this book is from IDW, is just too good. Uh, and I'm in a very Trek mood of late, um, as well as loving everything that uh, that Kelly and Lansing are putting out. Um, so yeah, this is Star Trek uh, number four from IDW. It continues to be a franchise and strain to try strange, bold new places. Um, they're very good at... Uh, Acknowledging and respecting what came before, uh, while uh, while while charting their own way forward, um, and all the pieces are coming together as the mission of the the USS Theseus sort of becomes becomes clear. And this particular uh, issue is an excellent, very heavy science fiction sort of episode of Star Trek that is a gorgeous sight to behold. I was listening to. Um, Matthew Rosenberg's Ideas Don't Bleed podcast and he had an interview with these two guys which is really worth listening to and it turns out that an awful lot of the stuff they did in I think Star Trek Year 5 which was their their previous Star Trek book uh, which I must get a hold of um, and, and elements of this are based on a long running uh, role playing game that they ran because they're both big like myself big uh, big fans of uh, of role playing Um so yeah, guys, uh, these are these are these are a couple of guys that I think I'd really love to have a few pints with, and uh, could very easily have a good uh, a good chat to some role playing Star Trek nerds. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean the 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 series continues. We the, the the series lead is Benjamin Sisko, the the captain uh, in the Deep Space Nine TV show, one that I finished this week again, and uh, Benjamin Sisko has very much risen up the 
up the ranks for me as as one of my favorite uh, captains in uh, in the Star Trek series. But his return uh, to our reality continues to be difficult for him. Uh, at the end of Deep Space Nine, he he ended up being taken away by the Bajoran prophets uh, and uh, and living in a in a different dimension um, in a godlike state. So he's he's returned now. And it's been difficult for him, but it's also difficult for Jack, the son that he left behind, who uh, is now with him on the mission. <clears throat> and there's, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot of unspoken conflict, uh, you know, as the rest of the Theseus crew continue to uh, try and find a way to locate the the next target of the the God Killer, um, and and this issue after it was after executing a promising theory. Uh, they discover where uh, the, the potential next target might be located, and they travel to that uh, location, which is between the Klingon and the Romulan em- em- empires, and they discover a, a structure that uh, is both mechanical and organic. Um, it's the, the God City. Uh, it's lying dormant in space, yet still alive, and as they begin to investigate, they're interrupted uh, by the God Killer and his mission to end all gods everywhere. Uh, so it's a fairly uh, fairly Star Trekky sort of notion, which I know isn't necessarily your your fandom, Alan, mm-hmm. but uh, but nonetheless, it is. It's really entertaining. It's really really good stuff. Really top quality Star Trek. It, it opens with Cisco in his quarters with with his son Jack, trying to find a way to talk to him about his experiences and and try and you know in a way that won't push him further away. Uh, we have the crew, Talir, who's the the Vulcan, who they're. You know the Vulcan science officer who they're, who they're trying not to be Spock. They're doing a really good job of, of creating a different character. We got Scotty and Cato, you know, hitting upon a sudden inspiration that leads them to the God City. And uh, in short, their opportunity to study the city is cut short whenever Kalis, the Emperor of the Klingons, and his God Killer weapon arrive intent on destroying yet another advanced being. But yeah, this scene between Cisco and Jack, you know, multiple times over over the course of of, of Deep Space Nine. The television series, Cisco and Jack find themselves sort of conflicted over Cisco's willingness to put himself at risk to pursue what he believed were the prophet's plans for his destiny, and add to that 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 Cisco never said goodbye to his son at the end of the series, and now he's back, and the first thing in his mind is the mission the prophets gave him. Um, Kelly and Lansing, really efficient scripting, you, you feel that underlying tension, and it's it's clear there's. There's a lot to be done to to repair the the father son relationship, and and a lot of the a lot of the issue and a lot of the that um, that friction, uh, you know, at the centre of it lies the question of the nature of godhood, and we have Kalis here, the emperor of the Klingons, preparing to kill the life form at the heart of the god city, uh, and he asks Cisco if he considers himself a god, and and Cisco doesn't answer. Uh, he's, you know, Cisco's now uniquely, uniquely suited as the character to explore this question because, you know, the way they've developed him as a religious figure and a and a spiritual person over the course of the the entirety of uh, the seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. Um, overall, it's a it's a heavier character and storyline type issue with uh, some some wee bits of action. Um, you know, it's it's. It's really necessary in those sorts of stories that you feel everything that the characters feel and and and, and see and understand what they're what they're seeing to get the full impact. Uh, and we very much get there with this with this issue. 
Um, the the artwork uh, is is handled by very two two familiar artists to the to the series. That's uh, uh, Ramon Rosanos, who's and Oleg uh, Chudikov, who are both regulars. They've they've had one issue each, uh, you know, up until this point. Um, and uh, sometimes that you know you know yourself whenever there's two artists maybe on an issue it can be it can be quite jarring but you know because of conflicting styles you know rather than there being anything wrong with what they're doing but in this case place it's very very smooth and cohesive um so yeah both artists absolutely nailing the expressions and the body language uh, and the, the technology on the ship um and just as you were saying uh, earlier with regard to panel choices you know there's there's some great choices made here full spreads across two pages as they enter the god city and then smaller panels you know dotting you know around showing you know characters discussing the moment so it's just it's just great i mean i'm i'm really in a star trek place at the minute uh and uh, in this series by these creators probably couldn't have come at a better time for me i think so uh, i picked the first issue i picked the third issue i'm picking the fourth issue i'm really enjoying this series um They've just kicked off a second series by by the fantastic Christopher Cantwell, um, uh, which is uh, Star Trek Defiant, which again is going to be another crew made up of members of different ships from different TV series. So really loving what the what Lansing and and, and Kelly are doing here. Um, perfect choice. It makes me wonder what was wrong with issue two. Um, I probably realised <laughs> it was picking every issue, and then he just went to the hell with it. It's like that time I, you know, broke the fourth wall and picked the Walking Dead as a pick of the week. Yeah, you know, damn you. Sometimes you just have to do it. Sometimes you just have to do it. But uh, yeah, cool. That is Star Trek number four, and uh, a second mention of the team of uh, Colin Kelly and Jackson Lanzig there as well. Um, you know, we're we're obviously talking about creators whose work we enjoy. You know, these guys are rising up the charts for us. Mark Wade, obviously, with Batman Superman. So, of course, even though we don't have Nightwing this month, we still have to talk about Tom Taylor because, of course, we do. And that is because Deceased War of the Undead Gods 6 came out this month. And I'll be honest, with, with Deceased, the, this latest series was starting to lose a little bit of momentum, I thought. Um, you know, Deceased was obviously fresh when it came out. I know it was a little bit derivative of maybe Marvel Zombies, but obviously in the DC Universe. But, you know, when it's early on in a series like that and there's big character deaths and stuff that happens outside of canon, big shocking moments, they hit harder, I think. I think you almost become slightly numb to it, a few volumes in maybe. But when they announced this one, they said this was going to be the last volume. So we're starting to hit end game territory here. Um, it's going to be eight issues in total, so there's only two to go. And as I say, this one, not that it felt like a chore compared to the other volumes, but it wasn't quite reaching those heights for me. But then issue six happened and holy crap. Now, I know that I'm a touch sentimental these days at any time something cool happens with Alfred, given my son's name. Uh, it instantly just elevates material for me. But there's something that happens in this with Alfred that is just incredible. Now, I can't remember. Are you on Deceased? You're not. You read no, trades? I am not. No. I think. But I don't want to go into too much spoilery territory, but it's up to you if you want me to. But so just to give you a brief overview with this book anyway, we're starting to, <clears throat> as I say, enter the end game. You know, all hope is lost. We've got literal gods fighting each other over universes. Planets are getting destroyed left, right, and center. You know, Kilowog's planet's destroyed at the start of this, which leads to a really, really great line, actually. 
Um, Superman's still alive in this, and as Kilowog's planet's destroyed, there's the narration. Uh, the narration, I should say as well, is Alfred. He says, and for the second time in his life, the man from Krypton was powerless as a world died. You know, T- Tom Taylor just gets these characters, and when you've got a book with such an extensive range of characters, you have to make those moments count. You you know, we've talked about it before, economy of storytelling. Tom Taylor's one of the masters of it. He can juggle a large cast, I think, like no other writer in comics today. Um, I'm sure you'll make cases for other writers. Jed McKay would be a good shout, therefore is a really good pick for upcoming Avengers, for example. But, you know, this this one issue contains Lobo, it contains Kyle Reiner Green Lantern, it contains Superman, it contains Big Barda, it contains Alfred, it contains Damian Wayne, it contains Leslie Tompkins, it contains the Spectre, it contains all these characters, Green Arrow, but they all get moments and they don't feel light because the weight of these characters Tom Taylor understands. He only needs a few panels almost. But as I say, we're we're reaching endgame territory. There's a huge big battle going on between the Spectre and the Superman villain whose name I will never be able to pronounce. I'm just gonna call him the Imp. Uh you know you know who I'm talking about. Uh mix the Mix the <laughs> but anyway, there's this there's this huge big battle going on between them. So obviously Jim Corrigan Spectre and he basically takes his eye off for half a second and he the imp reaches into him and he's like, Your time is at an end and he pulls Jim Corrigan out of the Spectre and uh just before the Spectre dies, Superman catches him or not Spectre, Jim Corrigan dies. Superman catches him and says, This universe is a miracle, don't let it fall, Superman. You know, Clark held Jim's hand as he died, and the wrath of the presence and untethered and drifted away. So, oh man, I'm getting chills just talking about this. But uh, <laughs> you're getting towards the end of the book, and Leslie Tompkins in this universe and Alfred are a romantic couple, and she dies in this issue. Now, the thing with deceased is the deaths maybe don't mean as much as they used to because they found a cure in deceased now. They can bring characters back as long as they don't destroy their bodies. Ah, right. But there's this great moment, you know, Alfred's grieving over Leslie's death. You know, Bruce is long dead in the deceased universe. Damian Wayne is Batman now. So he's saying, you know, Alfred, this isn't over. We can come back. We can save everyone. But we have to go now. And then just at this point... um. The father of the new gods crashes onto the planet and there's this huge big battle. Damien, of course, jumps in, throws smoke bombs at him, punches him, everything. But as Alfred says, the sound of the gods' fist on Damien's face was sickening and Damien's sent to the ground. And, oh man, I'm actually going to tear up here. But Alfred has this great moment where he is just, like all the rage, all the anger, all the upset nature of it has just hit him. And he just basically lets out this echoing massive scream. You know, it's flashbacks to Bruce's parents dying, flashes to Leslie dying. He stands in front of Damien in between a god. And then the Spectre takes over Alfred. And that's where ah, the issue ends. And holy crap. Cool. It was just <laughs> absolutely... I can't believe I'm getting choked up over a bloody comic book. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. It wouldn't be the first time. But uh, yeah, you get to the end of the issue and Alfred is now the Spectre. And he's you know facing the new gods. And he basically says, this is the spirit of vengeance and the rage of a man. And you will not take another son from me. And then I ended a god. Um, oh, just... As I say, it's a series that's had definitely its ups and downs with the latest volume. But reading that issue and then just talking back about it, like it genuinely gives me goosebumps and sort of shows the power when you have a writer who understands that universe, understands those characters, and knows his audience and just uh-huh. masterfully delivers it. So uh, I'm going to go take a wee moment here and let you move on to whatever's next. So. 
<laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, I'll maybe I'll maybe pick that up and trade because I uh, I sort of got off the deceased stuff um, a while back. Um, but yeah, sounds uh, sounds awesome. Uh, maybe not quite as uh, as emotional. Um, my pick is staying on uh, on the, Z- the DC tip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I am going for Matthew Rosenberg and Steven Segovia's Wildcats number four um, because uh, I'm loving Wildcats. Um, so fourth issue of this uh, relaunch of a classic uh, Wildstorm, Image Wildstorm series. Um, Cole Cash, the man known as Grifter, is on the run and uh, he's on his own. Uh, a zealot tries to get to Marlowe to help him, uh, the boss, uh, in the aftermath of their mission to rescue the son of a diplomat, Grifter is, is on the run, uh, being the only one left behind. Um, he's dodging soldiers, uh, haunting him, uh, and the public uh, face of Halo takes the opportunity to show their uh, team as real heroes, but as the real heroes behind the rescue. At the same time, Zillet and Fairchild are trying to get to Marlow to uh, to get him to rescue Cole. Um, as there's only two allies, they look for a way to access their boss and rescue him. Grifter finds his mission a lot more dangerous when he runs into a group of ninjas and the new leader of the League of Assassins. Um, are you on Wildcats? Yeah, no, I've been enjoying Wildcats. I don't have yeah. the same affinity for the original runs that you would have had. I, I've never read a lot of those, but Rosenberg, I was on it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, for me, just when you, you think that this series can't can't get too much better, it surprises you. And uh, this issue focuses mainly on on Grifter being behind enemy lines, I say, as the rest of the team trying to get approval to save him, and uh, Marlowe is loath to do so. It's an interesting uh, turn of an issue, and that its main focus isn't the action or the danger, but the the characters and their their relationships. Um, I mean, it's a really dysfunctional team, but Rosenberg reminds us that they are in in some ways a family. Uh, it's it's one that. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, it's not a, not a family that you necessarily want to be with all the time. They fight and they want to slap each other, but they are a family and, and a team and they watch out for each other. But um, I think the real the thing I really enjoyed about this was the depth that that Rosenberg gives to Grifter. I mean, he's Grifter has always, from the very, very start, he's been a cool character in many ways. Like so much of the early image stuff, it was was so much more sort of style over substance um you know he was he was sort of low in the word count and high in the action count um but you know we're we're seeing his his inner monologue you know his thoughts in the situation as things get more and more desperate and uh i mean there's there's definitely there's definitely a, her, a you know a, a heroic person there despite you know the surface cynicism you know there's 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 a lot going on um the art is by Steven Segovia, uh, Elmer Santos, uh, Ferran Delgado, and uh, I mean it's just it's it's just lovely. It really is 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 defining these characters. Um, the thing that the thing that I enjoyed is also the thing that's sort of annoying me a wee bit. You know, so far this series has been. I mean, the series comes from you know a grifter backstory in the in the Batman Urban Legends uh, series uh, that, that Rosenberg wrote. And mm-hmm. it was a grifter story, and this up until now has really also been more of a grifter story. Um, we're getting we're getting grifter in a much more human way, much more um, uh, 
multifaceted sort of real character than he was in the 90s. But the the rest of the cast are sort of getting left behind a wee bit. We're getting sort of hints and tips of, of development and, and stuff. Uh, like the likes of Maul and Warblade have only really been shown once. And uh, I'm sure that'll change uh, as the as things start to pull together. But but right now, it's a team book that's really only about one character, I feel. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's a very tense sort of tension-filled action adventure for Grifter. It's colourful, it's flashy, it's bloody survival drama. Uh, you know, we get to see how resilient he is. Um, but yeah, we're definitely not getting getting enough of the other cats yet to uh, to to uh, for me to to enjoy the book to its 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 full. Um, but yeah, it's also cool to see you know a little bit of Zealot and Fairchild sort of trying to trying to to, to overcome. But yeah, um, really enjoying it. Can't wait to see how it all connects together and you know, how much more it draws on the original Wildcat stuff. Great issue, very funny, very action-packed, um, very, very surprising, uh, but thoroughly enjoyable, didn't you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I see Wildcats as a bit of a palate cleanser series, you know, in amongst all the darkness, and there's not a lot of depth to Wildcats for me. You know, a lot of it is yeah. on surface, and that's probably not surprising, given that it was born out of, you know, the artist initiative and image and all that kind of stuff but it's just a fun book but i understand what you're saying about grifter you know there's, there's undeniably i mean there's a central character of any book i suppose but when it's supposed to be a team book i can understand that being a little bit frustrating um but rosenberg but Gr- grifter is cool like grifter oh no he's a great the- character but you could almost call the series <laughs> grifter and then you know more, yeah. more what to expect but yeah i mean i was always going to jump on this just because rosenberg did that cool grifter story back when batman urban legends was first starting and uh, I just really like the work he did there. Plus, you always get a good sense of humor in it as well, which is uh, yeah, which yeah, is pretty 100%. cool. So, as I say, it's never a book that I think is going to have incredible depth to it. But you always have a blast reading it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's, there's a lot to happen. I hope this is around for a long time. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah, for sure. Cool. So that is Wildcats, and we're going to continue on this DC love train. Holy moly! It really is a DC love train this month. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is this month, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, this was a late edition for me. I actually had something else in its place. There was a really cool horror book I enjoyed this month called Harrower from Boom Studios. Justin Jordan and Bram Revel. It's only one issue deep, uh, which is definitely worth your time. But I, I slipped back in another DC title for the simple reason that I'm. Anybody who knows me knows I'm not the biggest Superman guy in terms of comics. I think, in terms of ongoings, I should say. Like, I love a good Superman miniseries, you know, Up in the Sky, American Alien, you know, Birthright, you know, stuff like this. But I I just think when you have a character that powerful that there's only so many times you can either take away his abilities, kryptonite, magic, or put his loved ones in danger. You know, I've always loved Batman because Bruce is just a, a, a human being, you know what I mean? But... I was determined that with Superman number one, which hit this month, I was going to give it a go for the simple reason, again, Coffin Heroes Mantra, follow creators, and Joshua Williamson was taking over Superman uh, with artist Jamal Campbell. Now, I'm not too familiar with Jamal Campbell's work outside of, he's been doing Nightwing variants for probably the last three or four years, I would say, Uh, and his work was always pretty dynamic, pretty cool, but I'd never sort of seen it in a sequential environment. So I was going in sort of nice and fresh with this. It does have an absolutely gorgeous wraparound front cover uh, with, you know, one side being devoted to Superman, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, Perry, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other side being um, Lex Luthor and, you know, Superman villains, that kind of thing. But 
I wanted to jump into it as to say, A, because of creators, and B, you know, we always say to people about starting points, and this is very much a starting point. And Williamson delivered massively in this, I think. He he managed to deliver a Superman issue that was uncluttered, easy to follow, had good character moments, still set up one or two new status quos, but only by explaining what it was before. You know, things like uh, Lois is in charge of the planet now, uh, uh-huh. Daily Planet. Um, taking over from Perry while he's away at the moment. So this is a shake-up of a status quo, but, you know, Perry was there in the first place. It's not just change for change's sake. Um, but the thing that I really enjoyed the most, and it's something I've never really thought about, but then again, I'm not a comic book writer, I suppose, but I love the idea that, you know, obviously, no matter where Superman is on Earth, he the, the idea is that he can hear anybody. If he focuses and concentrates, he can hear anybody cry for help, in need of assistance, whatever it is. But if there's someone who knows that he can do that, it's Lex Luthor. Now, in this, Lex Luthor is in jail. But he knows even when he sits in his little 6 by 8 cell with no one around, if he speaks out loud and says, are you listening to me? He knows Superman's going to hear it. So he becomes a little bit of an earworm at the start for Clark. He doesn't know quite how to deal with it. He just can't get rid of that voice in his head. You know, um, the the issue kicks off with a really cool sort of traditional Superman superheroing. You know, there's a big massive conflict uh, at a wedding, and you know, there's there's some great art at this point as well. You know, Jamal Campbell did this really class splash page where Superman is protecting like the bride and groom, and you just see the cape billowing off to the side, and you can see you know the Superman history just in the space of a couple of panels. You know, it's mm-hmm. you know. Krypton being destroyed, it's Mom Park Ken finding him in a field, it's meeting Lex Luthor for the first time, it's going to Metropolis, you know, and this is all again, you know, I'm using the phrase again, but yeah, economy of storytelling brings you right up to date just in case you're a little uh-huh. bit unfamiliar with. Just Super- in case you're not familiar with Superman. I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, say a six year old is reading this, do they really yeah, know the yeah. origin of Superman? And the the comic actually says 13 plus on the front but i think this does a really good job of being an all ages comic mm. you know it's it's quite wholesome in places it's violent but without any sort of graphic depictions of violence um you know the characters don't talk in a in a way that would be off putting to younger readers but at the same time you don't feel talked down to if you're an older reader it's just williamson mm-hmm. strikes a really really good balance in this uh, you then start to introduce um, villains like Parasite. You you start to introduce the idea of Lex saying, um, you're going to need my help whether you like it or not because I know how to take some of these guys down because they're my adversaries, not yours. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And all the while, while he's juggling with, you know, normal Daily Planet stuff. But yeah, no, I, I thought this was a blast. You know, it was, I, yeah. I just blasted straight through it. Really enjoyed it. Had a wee bit of a cheesy grin in my face reading it. I thought the art was great. Uh, loads of great expressions to it, great colours uh, the whole way through as well. And yeah, it has me on board. I mean, again, I don't know if I'll be on board 29 issues down the line, but you know, this this is off to a very, very strong start. And uh, I'm looking forward to issue two, which coincidentally drops this coming Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, it was just it's just a great balance. Williamson is, a, is, is fantastic at this. You know, he he's changed elements of the status quo, but he's kept and highlighted the comforting constants, you know, so we've got a new editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet, we've got a new police chief, we've got this partnership with LexCorp, but we also have the relationship with Lois Lane, you know, the Jimmy Olsen, the rivalry with Lex Luthor, so there's a combination of shake-ups and constants, um, and uh, as you say, the same with the, the Rogues Gallery, as well as, you know, there's some constants in there, as well as what looks like a new a new threat, mm-hmm. Um 
He's he's taken some stuff and put it back in the box. Obviously, Clark's secret identity is no longer public knowledge, uh, except for his immediate family and the, and the Justice League and all that, thanks to Lex Luthor. Um, yeah, Somewhere he the, never you know, wants to be is in Lex's pocket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the idea of Lex as his unwanted man in the chair uh, is, uh, is interesting, but also the position that Lex has put Clark in, you know... With the uh, you know L- L- Luther placing the the company the Lex Corp in Superman's hands, and uh, you know Mercy as his corporate liaison, and uh, you know it can't say no because if if Superman says no, then Lex will will close the company and sack all the employees, uh, and that would be on on Superman's on Superman's uh, hat he- you know head uh, sort of thing. So yeah, it was it was very much uh, you know full of life and energy and color and uh, you know. Jamal Campbell, who I think was on Far Sector, um, yes, yes, you know, uh, has yeah has has some great, you know, giant moments and some small moments, and uh, you know, it's it's not a it's not a reinvention. You can't reinvent Superman. It's just you know you you kind of felt assured that the the character that you know is 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 there. There's just a few you know a few more wrinkles you know and the you know that that to make his modern adventures fresh while still connecting them to the past. I mean, Philip Kennedy Johnson's run was fantastic, but the definition of what, what PKJ did was it wasn't a normal story for Superman. You know, it, it, Superman was isolated in Warworld for a year. It was, it was very out of the ordinary, you know, if you come to think about the character, but this, this is very much rooted in Metropolis. It's very much rooted in, and supporting cast and old foes and it feels it feels a wee bit like 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 Dan Jurgen's 1990s Superman uh, in a way uh so I yeah I really enjoyed it it did have 18 different covers which definitely shores up the fact that DC has a has a variant problem it's got more fucking variants than, than covid but uh <laughs> but uh wow but yeah, <laughs> really wow. A, what a, a line. Real, yeah, a really enjoyable, a really enjoyable first issue. Really looking forward to the second issue. Excellent. Well, yeah, as I say, issue two hits this week, so looking forward to to more of that. So, yeah, just thought I'd throw out a bit of love for Superman in between all of my Batman picks, which, holy crap, is nearly my entire month now that I look at it. But, yep. uh, well, more on that later. But uh, why don't we move? Oh, no, we're not even moving away from Batman or Gotham City or DC. What is your next pick of this month? We are moving away from Batman. We're staying in Gotham City and we're staying with DC. Um, uh, it's GCPD, The Blue Wall, number five, which by John Ridley. Um, John Ridley and Stefano Raphael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, uh, on, on art. Um, just this has been phenomenal from the start. Um, I mean, whenever you have John Agreed. Ridley uh, writing a cop comic, um, you know, you can ex- you, you would expect it to to focus on the inequalities and inequities built into law enforcement. You know, with with the Gotham City PD being, you know, the alias for the New York PD or the Chicago PD or whatever. Uh, you know, the, the, the inequalities built into law enforcement, the justice system, and, you know, its desire to protect itself over the public. And, I mean, it's it's been phenomenal, uh, but it's, it, the, and it's been a great build-up, uh, but it has, these, these last couple of issues have really become that comic that, 
sort of I expected it to be. Um, and, and I think issue five was maybe the most powerful, most powerful issue. And we really see how Gotham City Police Department, you know, can take a bite out of, you know, good cops who are trying to make a difference in the system, whether those are the rookies that we see or whether those are, are Rene Montoya, the, the commissioner. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, things are just getting, getting getting considerably darker with the next cop on a on a vengeance-filled killing spree and Commissioner Montoya losing control in both work and her personal life, battling demons, you know, that uh, she's maybe now just chosen one fight too many. Um, former, I guess, former, one of the former rookie cops, uh, Danny Ortega has been named as a, a person of interest for the killings and he's missing and there's there's been a note found at the killing of the commissioner's brother and fiance that points definitely in his direction. He, you know, Ortega was um, was a was a rookie cop who had come in in this intake with his two other friends and uh, he'd been exposed to <clears throat> to racial abuse, you know, police banter uh, in the in the office that he was in and it was just too much. But, you know, is that enough to, to push him into, you know, from being a good cop to being a, a serial killer, you know? It's, I mean, we talked earlier on about, about Lance Riddick and The Wire and, you know, this is this is definitely a comic. If you're a fan of The Wire, if you're a fan of The Shield or any of those sorts of shows, um, those sorts of dramas, this is definitely that in, in, in comic form. And uh, it's a great sequel to Gotham Central, uh, an absolutely, you know, perfect fit for John Ridley as a writer. Um, there's a lot of darkness and grittiness and realism to uh, brought by John Ridley to a world that's already dark and, and gritty. Um, there's it's just very emotionally raw and hits on a whole lot of different levels. I think with uh, with Stefano Raffaele sort of creating just that the backdrop that that rawness needs um yeah it's just such a such a good book isn't it no i wholeheartedly agree it's uh i i used to say this about task force Z all the time that it was one of the best books dc were putting out that not enough people were reading and this very much falls under that purview i mean as you say this is going to tackle serious subject matter the the opening page of issue one and every page or, or every issue one of every issue uh, has this sort of disclaimer of this comic contains language of a racially offensive nature and may not be suitable for all age groups. Its inclusion is an intentional creative choice intended to highlight the fact that language of this type was frequently deployed in past decades and remains in use today, even as conte- contexts evolve. Readers for whom such language is triggering or hurtful should be advised. So straight away, you know you're going to be dealing with weighty themes. Uh, you're not going to be reading an uplifting book about three new <laughs> rookies who are going to make a massive difference in Gotham City. You know, they, they've all been broken in different ways. And what's interesting is usually any cops that are sort of broken in Gotham City or any sort of canon-based story, it's a villain that does it to them. Or it's like they get attacked by the Joker or they get, you know shot up during a bank robbery by Two-Face or whatever. But in this, it's nothing to do with that. It's their own police system and how they are treated for being of a different race or a different Mm -hmm. colour or a different ethnicity or whatever it may be. And as you say, it it, it toes that fine line because, of course, we're not on the side of a mass murderer. You can never be, but you can see how he got to that place. And it, it creates those 
dangerous gray moral lines it blurs them a lot like even to the point where it wasn't i don't have the issue in front of me but i'm pretty sure in this issue they interview his father and he's sort of like yeah what did yep. you expect this is what your cops did to him you know it's not mm-hmm. like a father to crying a murderer he's sort of like I, I can see why he's done this you know and it's it's just there's a lot of interest and creative choices in this R- renee montoya is one of my favorite characters in batman i yeah, love it anytime yeah. she's brought in and i and is this the issue as well where she opens the drawer uh-huh and yeah. there's the the question mask there and stuff like that so yeah yeah no fantastic book i mean i'm I'm a little bit gutted it's only six issues i don't know if it's a case of six issues see how it does there may be more i, I don't know but it has been a, a a top level book every issue and, yeah. and it's a hard read as well you know it, it does it does make you face some uncomfortable truths i think and mm-hmm. uh, and then yeah, the art I think's class as well. Stefano Rafale it reminds me a lot of uh, like sort of Jorge Fornes, who was the artist on Rorschach, or David Mazzuchelli, or that sort of real world aesthetic, uh, which which works really really well. So yeah, as as you say, the biggest compliment I can give it, worthy follow up or worthy companion piece to to Gotham Central. Yeah, fantastic. Yep, really really enjoyable, really enjoyable. Yeah, so I definitely keep an eye out for that one, guys, when it hits trade. Because as I say it. I think a lot of people may have looked at it and went, oh, another Batman book, another Gotham-based book, you know, that sort of thing. But this really is deserving of your time. It's like nothing else on the DC line at the moment. It almost reads like a Vertigo title, I think. Yeah, fair to say, fair to say. It's just, uh, just really enjoyable stuff. And that, uh, I mean, that uh, comparison to uh, Gotham Central is a fair one. Yeah, I think it's very, very well earned. So, yeah, guys, keep an eye out for that when it hits trade paperback, GCPD, The Blue Wall. Just the one issue to go for us single issue readers uh so yeah so that is keith's fourth choice of the month we're on to our final choices then for the month of february and i'm gonna talk batman again so (laughs) i brought this in because i haven't highlighted batman in a while chips at obviously took over issue 125 took over from joshua williamson who of course took over from james tinian and the first story arc was really a lot of fun which was feel safe and uh, but it led to a moment where bruce basically got zapped out of existence if you will but what happened was he finds himself in like a parallel gotham uh a gotham where bruce wayne died um long long ago and that there's never been a batman within so it's kind of an elseworld story it's kind of a canon story and it's kind of a new origin story for batman which i think is pretty cool for for chip to play with i mean He's brought along Mike Hawthorne for art duties for this as well. Mike Hawthorne has been working with him on Daredevil um, uh, for some of that run, along with Marco Cicchetto. So this issue I just thought was a lot of fun. As I say, it's kind of elseworldsy, so you see familiar characters but reimagined in slightly different ways. So, you know, just as I was talking about in Deceased, how Leslie Tompkins and Alfred were a couple. They're a couple in this uh, universe as well. But Alfred is still weighing with the guilt that, you know, Bruce died all these years ago and he doesn't know his purpose in life and... He's almost just a stay-at-home husband. You know, Leslie is the one who's like, I have to go, I have to go to work. I, You know, she's a doctor and so forth. But um, as I say, Bruce sort of tries to understand this word. The arc is called the Batman of Gotham. But as I say, this is not Bruce's Gotham. This is, it's almost a twisted version of It's a Wonderful Life. It's almost a version of, here's what would have happened if Batman didn't exist. So Bruce starts stalking the streets. He, he takes on a you know he puts on a black beanie hat black you know t-shirt black jeans just starts blending into the background and trying to get the lay of the land and how it works and how it works is you know you've got a, a drugged up harvey dent who's running the police force you've got um a mysterious character introduced in this one called the red mask you've got this um big industry called holiday industries which seems to 
be like the dark mirror version of uh, Wayne Industries. And what's cool is Bruce basically realizes like he's in this parallel version of Gotham, but he doesn't have the toys, he doesn't have the friends, he doesn't have the partners, he has next to nothing. But what he can do, what he's been doing all his life, is pretending to be a billionaire playboy. So he uses this to try and infiltrate the 1%, to try and start making contacts and, you know, build up his inventory and all this kind of stuff. And it's at that point he's introduced to this uh, Gotham, Selina Kyle. Um, but Selina knows that this is Bruce Wayne, so she knows something's up, um, you know, because she says you're supposed to be dead or at least you're supposed to be Mr. Wayne. So um, so a secret straight out. There's, there's a... Din- a a strange-looking reinterpretation of the Joker here as well, where you see him as just a normal person. But, of course, Bruce can't see anything but the Joker. Um, you know, there, there's just there's a lot of fun to it. You know, you can see Chip is just playing with all these conventions. You know, Killer Croc comes into it uh, as, like, this bouncer at a big party. Um, you then have, going further through the issue, Bruce, of course, jump... I, I love this part. This, this is just Chip embracing how ridiculous his run's been so far. Because he jumps out of a building with uh, a little bit of wire just to get him down. And he basically says, well, I've fallen from the moon. I can survive this. Because, of course, that happened in the field safe arc where Bruce managed to negotiate his way back to Earth. Which was a really kick-ass moment, but inherently ridiculous. But, again, Chip just embraces that, I think, with with the writing. You know, in this Batman of Gotham, he's got, like, a conscience that drives him. And it, it's it's sort of like a, a Commissioner Gordon, almost. But it's just a skull with a mustache and a pipe sort of guiding him along. But the issue ends with Bruce. You know, he talks about how he misses his family. He misses his kids. He misses his version of Gotham. But he sees that this is a place that needs help. So that that's inherently burned into his, you know, his making that he wants to help people. Uh, so the issue ends with a very, very iconic line throwing, being thrown back to the joys of uh, Miller Mazzuchelli's Batman Year One, where it ends saying, "Yes, I shall become a bat." Uh, again, it's just it's a fun reinterpretation. It's almost like a remix of classic Batman stuff. There's maybe people who could say it's unoriginal. I don't know, but I I just see it as like a fun Elseworlds tale, and I like seeing those other characters reinterpreted, brought back in, and uh, the art is is another big bonus as well. The art is fantastic all the way through. So uh, yeah, no, really enjoying Chip stuff so far. As I say, the arcs are very different. Feelsafe was quite sci-fi and quite. Um, quite high stakes whereas this seems a little bit more of a let's get to the core of what bruce feels is his responsibility as batman and obviously to try and find a way back home as well the one thing i would like to see uh is dc to announce like a mirror book that shows what i mean maybe chip will get to this later but that shows what's happening on his earth as this is happening because one of my favorite runs of all time is grant morrison's batman and robin where dick grayson Mm -hmm. was batman and Damian Wayne was Robin because obviously Bruce was, you know, sent back through time. Jeez, Bruce gets sent over all kinds of... I mean, this is not <laughs> what he envisioned when he thought, I'll become a bat. But yeah. I'd love to see a companion piece, like showing them looking for him or how they're protecting Gotham in the meantime. Because again, I, I love that Batman and Robin run. I think it was, it was cut down in its prime as well. It was just, I think there was, you know, maybe editorial pressure to bring Bruce Wayne back when, you know, we had the second best Batman in his steed, so... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> very uh <laughs> yeah, you've read that run haven't you i hear you i hear you i've uh, you... some pieces of it yep. yeah yeah i must throw you my i've got just to give you another omnibus to read i must throw you because it was only like 20 issues it really wasn't long but it was just superb it was just you know mm-hmm. as i say i was a 
a happy Batman and a dark Robin instead of a dark Batman and a happy Robin. So it was, just, yeah. it was a lot of fun. Very, but, uh, very cool. But yeah, Batman 132 released in February is my fifth pick of the month. So that leaves us just one more. And dear listener, if you have held on all this time, fingers crossed, hoping we were going to move away A from Batman and B from DC. Mr. Marvel finally has a Marvel title. What are yes, we finishing absolutely. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't disappoint. Uh, so, my last pick is uh, Spider-Man pick. Uh, it is Spider-Man: The Lost Hunt number four by uh, legend J.M. Dematis and artist uh, Eder Messias. And this is it's a bit of a guilty pleasure, I suppose. It's one of Marvel's current run of uh, sort of nostalgia pieces. Uh, sort of picking up stories and arcs from years gone by and filling in the blanks using legacy creators. And in this case, it is uh, legendary Spider-Man writer, J.M. Dematis. Um, and they've done, you know, they've done a number of these. There's a Storm one coming out. There's uh, been a Gambit one set during Claremont's run. There's, um, you know, Venom, Lethal Protector, uh, that sort of stuff. So and this, J.M. Dematis returns to uncover the origins of Craven the Hunter. And, and famously in Craven's last hunt, the Jim Dematis delivered the definitive tale of one of Spider-Man's deadliest foes. But he's now sort of revealing secrets and delivering, uh, answering mysteries that Spidey fans have been waiting for. Uh, and this story of what made Craven the man he is, it's a tale set just after um, Spider-Man, the final adventure where Peter Parker uh, had left um, New York Um and uh, gone to New England. Uh, he left Ben Riley as Spider-Man, and he was himself powerless. Um, it is like a lot of books of that time, very, very text-heavy, a little, little long, but it's a fantastic read. And it goes through the story of uh, Aja Orisha, uh, who is the mother of uh, Craven's uh, right-hand man, Gregor, and. Uh, uh, it takes place after Craven has died and, and uh, young Craven has died as well. And uh, in doing so, in exploring her story, uh, it gives readers the full origin of Craven the Hunter all the while sort of juxtaposed against uh, Peter and Mary Jane's story as MJ works to bring Peter back to sanity, back to himself after what he's experienced uh, under under the uh, the machinations of Gregor. It's structurally it's 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 a really brilliant story there's there's two narratives going on and uh the story of 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 Aja is 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 really easily the standout beautifully constructed well drawn um it's kind of like an epic it links to wakanda um and uh, there's an awful lot happening it's not it's 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 all killer not filler uh sort of thing so um yeah really getting an understanding of this uh this character and uh and uh, what we're about to face as we go into to issue five. Um, so very, very well executed. Uh, very, very exciting. Um, yeah, just really, really enjoying this this series, and uh, it's one that's that's coming to an end uh, in March. So yeah, good, good stuff from uh, from one of one of Marvel's nostalgia pieces. Yeah, I kind of wish that with with these range of books that they would maybe create a banner for them, like. Uh, I don't know a, yeah. a legendary line yeah. or you know something like that because as you say the the library is ever expanding with it you know you've got a warlock one coming up soon I believe warlock rebirth yeah. mm-hmm. you've had silver surfer rebirth 
Venom Lethal Protector, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you've had plenty of these sort of classic era stories by, you know, established legendary creators. I kind of wish they create a banner for it, the way they have like the What If banner. Yeah, or... that's that'd be a really good idea. The, the underused What If banner. Yeah, well, the chip designed the brand new logo for, and they've done one book. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Actually, no, they did. What if Miles Morales didn't they? So I suppose they've done they two did. books. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, no, I, I enjoy some of these as well. You know, they're as you say, they're always going to be five issue mini series, and and it's a way of, you know, letting those legendary creators play in the sandbox again without having to worry about canon issues or you know stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I'll probably check this out when I hit trade. I, I didn't jump on it singles wise, but. As I say, a lot of these books have been really, really fun so far, so I can see that being a being a good read. So yes, Spider-Man The Lost Hunt number four rounds us off for February. So apologies for the ridiculously DC-heavy nature of this month's reviews. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Uh, uh, it just lands that way sometimes, you it know? It does, it does. I mean, it could be a big Marvel month next month, you never know. I mean, I, I'm already thinking of my picks for this month, and... Uh, I think I have at least two Marvel on there. Uh, so uh, you never know. As I say, it might be the, the alternate side of it next month. So you'll have to tune back in for that. But yeah, as ever, I mean, obviously those titles we've chatted about, they're all at various stages. Uh, some of them are series that are nearly finished. Some of them are series that have just kicked off. So um, as ever, if you're unsure about anything, you know, get in touch with the store. We'll always guide you, whether it's jump on the singles, wait for the trade, whatever the best way to get into these titles is, if any of them uh, tickles your fancy, shall we say. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, that was really cool. I really want to go now and read the C6 number, uh, read it again, uh, and, you know, have a wee box of tissues beside me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a big softy, but, well... What can you do? But yeah, no, pleasure as always, man, chatting with you with this stuff. And uh, I will look forward to seeing you when you finally get back off the road again next week. Uh Absolutely. Yes, look forward to it. That was was really good fun. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Excellent. So as ever, guys, hope you enjoyed this. Hope it's maybe directed you to a few titles that maybe weren't on your radar before and that are definitely worth your time. So cheers for listening. We'll be we'll have a preview show up next. I would say the, the new previews books are on their way. Solicitations are starting to drop. So that'll probably be our next one. But we promise to get on to a book club sometime soon. We keep talking about it. We we need to do it. Uh, so we'll we'll try and start doing a few of those throughout the uh, throughout the next couple of months as well. So anyway, again, glad. Hope you guys enjoyed this. Look forward to seeing you back here with the next episode. So take it easy. <laughs>